Hello and welcome to the channel that teaches you things your parents and teachers are too afraid to. The Helios blog. Today, Michaela Peterson talks about the tricks and psychology of good marketing. Let's get into it. The reason she's alone is because she's difficult. Women are not accepting the bare minimum. Women fuck men they respect. All the women who say things like, I'm strong, independent, I don't need no man, like, y'all impress me. Women just gaslight each other and say what they want to hear. luck so i have i've got a bit of experience with marketing and we're building an app which i told you about offline uh peterson academy for for online Shilling. courses and i realized i think a couple of years ago that i couldn't sit because i'm pretty work oriented so i like to sit down and solve problems and i realized for developing something new i did have to kind of wait and sometimes I'd wake up in the middle of the night yes. and go, oh, here's the idea finally. But there was no point in sitting down and forcing it because it just didn't work. I just had to wait. And sometimes it would take months and I'd be like, oh, I'll figure it out. Something will click eventually and I'll figure it out. So I guess so I get what you're saying about waiting. But you mentioned luck. Um, yeah. Is there any way to increase that or kind of hone those skills? Yeah, I think I think there are patterns of behavior you can adopt. And there are mindsets you can adopt, which is almost the act of distracting yourself or listening to the unconscious voice. I mean, a very boring... This is crap. One which is commonly um, uh, advanced is the overnight test. You ah. know, if you think about something, you sleep on it, and the following morning, you know, may maybe you have a further bout of inspiration, or maybe you realize the idea was kind of dumb all along. Yeah. Um, right. So this is garbage. This person here is just a trickster, right? You can just tell by their tone. Look at their expression. Just a liar. Just a like that's that's all I see. I see an imp of demon basically. Interesting. There are interesting patterns of decision making. The one I'm very fond of mentioned by Herodotus is that the ancient Persians when they had to debate any matter of import, they debated it twice, once when sober and once when drunk. And it was only when they agreed in both states that they actually adopted the action. So if it didn't That's appeal funny. to them when drunk, and in other words, if it didn't in a sense have an emotional appeal to them, um, and it also, it, it, so it had to meet two tests. In the same way, I suppose the jury system is interesting in uh, in Anglo-Saxon law, in that you have to convince not only legal experts that there is a case to answer, but you have to convince uh, you know, a representative body of people that what you're saying is just fundamentally believable and indeed reasonable. I mean, I had a friend who was on jury where the person was in le strictly legal terms guilty of the crime for which they were charged, but the jury agreed that given the provocation, their behavior was entirely understandable. And they basically let them off. That's not supposed to work like that. But it's similar to that Persian question where you look at the same thing in two different modes, context, settings, or whatever. And it's, a, by the way, it's a great disadvantage which creativity suffers from. So I always make the point that there is in, uh, in any kind of institutional setting, there's this asymmetry where creative people have to present their ideas to rational people for approval but it doesn't really happen the other way around. 
you don't get a bunch of yeah. accountants going, well, we've come to the conclusion that it's 3.7 million, but before we actually make that decision or write the check, we're going to share ideas with some really wacky people to see if they've got an alternative idea. You don't get engineers <laughs> going, well, we want to make the train faster. What about you? What would you do? Okay. Yeah. Because within any kind of rational, self-contained model of the world, it's effectively self-sustaining. Whereas creativity isn't self-sustaining. You've always got to win some battle somewhere else before you're allowed to act. And it seems to me that that asymmetry is kind of problematic and that I mean, if you want to get really deep in this, I don't know how, whether you or, or indeed your dad have ever met um, Ian McGilchrist, the author of The Master and oh, His yeah. Emissary. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That, that, that's, if you like, the vastly more philosophical and neuroscientific um, take on what I'm saying, that there's a natural balance between effectively left hemisphere, right hemisphere, modes of seeing the world in which in many, many settings, probably because of the need to win arguments, by the way, that's one reason, the left hemisphere view of the world artificially is allowed to predominate. Huh. That would be McGilchrist's yes. take on it. So the, the idea is because you are required to convince people the logical side of the brain wins out over the creative side this is i don't know it sounds too esoteric for my for my taste let me know in the comments what you what you think yeah and that's I'd definitely also true argue that there's there's a fundamental problem with i with with good ideas which is that they're often late to the party in that the ration what in what appears rational and consistent has an instantaneous appeal Whereas the better idea... Oh, what he's describing here is uh, conservatism versus liberalism, effectively, right? So, like, the conservative idea is you maintain the system as it is, and, the, and then the other idea is you innovate the system or you shatter the, the old system. That's because the... Yeah, okay. Anyway. First of all, it takes time to be accepted, but also takes time to be generated in many cases. You know, there, I mean, there are cases in point where, you know, I was given a brief and, you know, in, in the advertising world, but being candid, this happens, I failed completely. And then six months later, inspiration struck. I go, oh, God, why the hell did I think of that then? But the simple fact is I didn't because there's a kind of probabilistic. I'll, I'll tell you a little story, which I, I shared with Rick Rubin as well, which was I've got a friend who runs a business called Assure.io which I jokingly call Airb2B because it's effectively a home rental for homes where people intend to work. So every every home you rent will be kitted out with two retina screens, two very good desks, two ergonomic chairs, an espresso machine, and it'll have shit-hot Wi-Fi and probably electric car charging, okay? That's cool. It's going to be to be for a particular application. And I said, look, I can't think of anything that will help you advertise your product, but if I get lucky, I'll let you know. <laughs> okay. And about six months after I was aware of this business, I was staying in a hotel room with my wife. And it was actually my wife's observation, not mine. Well, she said, why is it? Which is a brilliant, brilliant piece of observation, which had never occurred. Why is it that hotels have this sexist idea that only one party in the room will want to use a desk? 
Okay. Yeah. So there's this fundamental sexism in hotel rooms, which is there's a chap signing million dollar checks sitting at the kind of Napoleonic scale desk. <laughs> whereas meanwhile, his lady wife is in the bathroom kind of, you know, powdering her face or, you know, putting on a polka dot bow, you know, because it's about the 1950s conception of what a, what a partnership is like. And funnily enough, I mean, there's a reason my wife noticed this, because I think I was hogging the desk and she was forced yeah. to sprawl, sprawl on some totally inappropriate item of furniture while trying to type. And I said, thank you, because you've just solved the problem for a sure. And the basic question is, which is a very good question, how come hotel rooms have two wash basins and only one desk? I mean, you spend a hell of a lot longer typing than you do cleaning your teeth. For some weird reason, they've decided that two wash basins was <laughs> absolute essential. Okay, but but yeah. one desk is absolutely fine. Well, it's not a matter of one desk, right? You just need to put the sp- the space for two chairs, right? Effectively, I'd... so it's it's a matter of the space underneath the desk because it's a Napoleonic desk, as you said, a really long one. So all you really need to do is fit two chairs under it. I'd... Again. And so that's, that's an interesting observation. Say, you know, in many cases, you've just got to wait to get lucky. And the reason is often, I think, there are several reasons. Some ideas arise through um, a, different, a very difficult form of observation, which is the dog that doesn't bark in the night. In other words, you have to notice the absence. I you must know the Sherlock Holmes story. I, I hope you are, were versed in the... Um, what Holmes notices is that the theft of a racehorse is probably an inside job because the dog didn't bark now that is if you like not a data point it's actually the absence of an expected data point which is harder to notice um often by the way often by the way ideas that generate uh interesting uh things arrive anecdotally they're surprisingly tangential or irrelevant right or um okay perhaps i was wrong in my initial observation Anyway, um, they can also be arrived at iteratively, right? Like an engineering problem. So you don't really know how to solve the problem, but you kind of do it through artificial selection. So like you try something and you see something works and something doesn't. So you discard the thing that doesn't work and you continue with the thing that does work and then you try again Um, and so on. That's kind of how they created crops, right? You select the biggest, juiciest fruit and then have that have children and on and on and on until you get really, really big, ripe, juicy fruit from uh, the initial product, which was, you know, not really that appetizing. Same sort of idea can be used to create new ideas as well or whatever to, to optimize previously thought of ideas. The inspiration you get is, um, uh, in yeah. a sense... Is, is, is not something that arises when you're actively looking for it. It's almost, in some ways, creative ideas are almost the act of distracting yourself. Um, I do have a kind of favorite so it, thing, it's, which it's, is that... So it's letting the subconscious do the job? I notice that you're more likely to have um, an idea or an inspiration when you're in a liminal point. So in other words, if you go from doing one thing to another... Now, it, it, just to make that point, Archimedes didn't have the idea sitting in the bar, as is commonly believed. He had the idea when he got into the bar. 
And, you know, ah, one, of, one of the things I quite like about... That's not... No. He was transitioning from doing some activity to bathing. That's, the, that's what liminal means. It means a zone between two zones. Yeah. So, like, driving would be an example of such a thing. Or, you know, washing yourself, I guess, or whatever it is. A routine between routines. ...working is that um, when you have 10 minutes to spare at home, you go and put the dishwasher on. You do something entirely different. Okay? And weirdly, it's at the moment when you flip from one mode of activity to another that inspiration is more likely to strike, I think. So, you know, I think there are tools. I think you can improve the odds. I think you can, to borrow a kind of Nassim Taleb phrase, you can increase your surface area exposure to possible upside optionality. <laughs> I think you can do that, but you can't necessarily force it. Okay, I like that. I think, I feel like I've noticed the same thing. I have, like in my life, I have a number of different projects going on and I need a number of different projects because if I only have one, I'm bored and it just tortures me. So I have way too many things going on so I can work on one and say, okay, I'm done. I'm tapped out here and move on to the other one and then move on to the other one. Is there like for, for people who are inclined to go into marketing, do you think there's an optimal number of projects they could work on at the same time? So yeah. they'd be switching tasks. It's interesting because one of the reasons for the existence of, for example, the advertising agency as an entity is that there's a certain sort of person who would find it painful to work on one thing all the time. And so there's a certain kind of mindset which thrives on variety, which an agency provides, which working in-house may not. Generally, I'd say working in marketing mm. in-house will provide you with a hell of a lot more variety than becoming an actuary or something. Um, uh, you know, I would recommend it for people of a particular mindset if you can cope with and thrive on and even relish a certain degree of messy. If you're obsessed, cool. if you're obsessed with if you're obsessed with having a universal framework which answers all questions, go and become an economist or something dangerous like that instead. <laughs> you know, but if you actually are happy with the fact that um, correct answers are scale and context dependent, and that psychology is a deeply perverse thing where the opposite of a good idea can be another good idea, if you're comfortable with that kind of thing then I highly recommend it. What worries me? So a person that views the world more subjectively might thrive in such an environment. That's interesting. Little bit. He's not. Yeah, I, I've, I've spent 30 years in advertising. I think advertising is actually probably a bit more important than people think, and it's, quite, it's highly entertaining and very enjoyable. What started to worry me is it's, What's significant about an advertising agency, and to some extent marketing as well in general, is there are very, very few modes of employment in which this type of thinking is encouraged, rewarded, or tolerated. Okay. So yeah. I once jokingly said that the great thing about working in an advertising agency is the one job where you can make a daft suggestion and still get promoted. Because something that's interesting, eccentric, counterintuitive, or odd, is prized in that atmosphere. It sounds like an artistic job. It sounds like a creative job, right? Where an idea that's different might actually be accepted. Interesting. Like, uh, sounds actually a lot like music or like visual art, what he's describing here. They're encouraged and rewarded in a way that it's often punished anywhere else. 
you know, in many other forms of employment, you'd be seen as, you know, fundamentally whimsical and not yeah. a safe pair of hands. Now, you know, to echo McGilchrist, what worries me, I know him quite well, actually, he's a great guy. What, and he's actually, interestingly, quite interested in advertising for this reason, in that there are worryingly few areas of activity where that kind of creative thought is properly rewarded or encouraged, I think. Because in many ways, you know, there's a, you know, a great, any good creative person will have some very strange attributes. They don't really have a sense of proportion because they know that inspiration is just as likely to come from something trivial as something big. You know, noticing the two words sound similar, okay, which is, you know, is seemingly irrelevant, can be a breakthrough in that kind of problem solving. And it, do, it does worry me that, if you like, that politics doesn't really have a creative department, that, you know, that actually... I would argue it does, but okay. A, sen a sensible, healthy organisation would encourage a degree of what you might call at least creative dissent from the mainstream narrative. Uh, yeah, modern society doesn't really do that <laughs> in 2023, I, I, I would say anyway. And yeah, I, I jokingly said, look, look, if I'd been in charge of an, of an investment bank in 2007, okay, um, I would have been fired long beforehand as an appalling person to run an investment bank. But the one thing I would have done is I would have been immune from the financial crisis because in my outer office, I would have employed sort of three Marxists or Austrian school economists or anybody who effectively had a counterpoint to what was an over-dominant kind of narrative of, uh, effectively a self-confirming narrative of how the economy works. Mm. Um, right, exactly. Uh, the, what's that called? Um, there's a term for it. Groupthink is the term, I believe. When you have too many people that are yes-men and nobody... To, to oppose the, the dominant viewpoint, uh, you can fall into big problems. Um, and so, you know, uh, I, I, think, I think there is a, you know, there's a natural kind of perversity. There's a lack of sense of proportion in creative people. There's kind of whimsicality. There's a reluctance to get started. All those things, I think, are a virtue in a creative setting, but they're not a great career move in most forms of employment. Indeed. Yeah, this is, this is definitely true. I think uh, I was probably just fortunate choosing. I, I had like a, a normal job. That By the way, he didn't answer the question, which is, is there an optimal number of projects? He, he didn't answer that. That was very topical, rational. And then I kind of did the creative things on the side until they grew yeah. enough to, to overtake, which I'm, I'm happy about. I'm grateful for. I have a question that's completely unrelated to what we were talking about. I've of always, course. I've I've always wondered, how do luxury companies get to the point, like say Hermes, for example, how do they get to the point that those products are so valuable? Are they all um, doing something similar? I mean, there are rules you can't break. I mean, one of the things which, of course, is interesting is that many of them are privately owned. Uh, there's a very interesting thing, which is that I think there are two... There are two kind of mindsets in the world, which is the Anglo-Saxon one, which you find in North America, which is if anything's very good, it should be made abundant and everybody should have it, which is why the United States produced Coke, okay? You know, as yeah. Walt said, all the Cokes are the same and all the Cokes are good, and the President of the United States can't get a better Coke than the bum on the corner of the street, 
Okay. Right, right, right. That's an interesting idea. Okay. And for a long time, particularly, uh, now, the French tend to have a mindset that anything that's any good has to be unbelievably scarce. Okay. Ah, okay. And one of the things that both, fre- you know, uh, snobby French bastards combined <laughs> with a privately owned company have as an advantage is that they, they resist the temptation to overproduce. Now, it also helps if you've been doing it for 100 years, if you have an extraordinary of heritage and authenticity. It also requires remarkable creative talent over long periods. I'm not suggesting it's easy. They're basically an empire, right, who's maintained the same thought process for 100 years. But it is a kind of fascinating fact that of the most valuable companies in the world, and certainly the ones that are most profitable in terms of margins, if you discount one or two pharmaceutical firms and Apple, the rest of them tend to be luxury goods businesses. Now, it's also yes. not a bad business to be in in one respect, okay, uh, in that whatever happens in the world economy, and this applies, by the way, even under communism, okay, whatever happens politically, there will always be some very rich people right. who wish to practice costly singling. Exactly. You well, also have the advantage... You're showing how, quote-unquote, good you are by overspending when you didn't have to. It's like um, peacocking, effectively. You also what have is the costly singling? Oh, right, it's a concept from biology, originally from an Israeli biologist called Amot Zahavi, to explain things like the peacock's tail. You see? Which is the... You see how I called it immediately? Effectively, a costly signal is one which is a, is a reliable indicator of fitness because you okay. couldn't afford to carry this decorative baggage around on your back if you weren't a pretty fit peacock to begin with. Okay. Elk's antlers are another example. In other words, they're things that actually grow. The guy to read here is a brilliant um, econ- well, econ-naturalist called Robert H. Frank, who's written a book called The Darwin Economy. But a large part of human consumption is actually positional. It's not really about utility at all. It's about your relative position and status. Right. Exactly. Uh, the, the concept is you are selling a lifestyle, effectively. That's, we, we've already discussed that in RP. That's, that's a mainstream idea already. And, of course, certain things demonstrate um, status very reliably because they've, uh, certain things demonstrate wealth very well because unless you were rich, you couldn't afford to do them, you know. And so you you might argue that sporting ability is a form of costly signal because it's a reliable indicator of your fitness. And so that's as distinct from cheap talk, which is merely an unsubstantiated claim. Right. Uh, It's uh, walking the walk as opposed to talking the talk. A costly signal is kind of a proof point. Uh, we, We use this kind of mechanism all the time. I guarantee, for example, that you have never left a FedEx or UPS envelope unopened on your desk for three days, okay? Because your inference is someone spent $20 to send me something, therefore I can infer from that that it's something of reasonable importance. Okay. You know, when you send out a wedding invitation, you don't do it by email. You know, there are all these kind of ways in which we signal through discretionary effort, discretionary expenditure, discretionary attention to detail, you know, discretionary perfectionism, you know, the things that are difficult to do just carry more informational freight 
than things that are easy. Yes. Indeed. That's, that is correct. Uh, that's where you get the expression, anything that's worth doing um, is not easy. No, <laughs> yeah. Let's continue. To some extent, good manners is really the display of discretionary acts, you know. Right. Um, and so costly signaling is something which, you know, it exists in the animal world, um, and she exists in flowers, uh, uh, interestingly, in the sense that uh, bees tend to be more attracted to plants with larger flowers on the grounds that you wouldn't bother spending all that money advertising your wares if you didn't have quite a lot of nectar. Because if you did false advertising, right. where you had very big petals but no nectar... It's a waste of energy. You wouldn't get any repeat business. And so yeah. your investment in flowers, would not in petals, would not be repaid. And so hummingbirds certainly, I think, use this as an inference point, which is the more you spend on advertising, in this case petals, the more likely it is you have something worthwhile. And so that you know that's another form of reliable, costly signal. But yeah. luxury goods really cater for people's positional urges. Um, and you know, one of the things are you know those bags are not only rare and expensive. By the way, if you want to buy a Kelly bag, they won't even sell you one until you've established your bona fides with the luxury goods retailer by buying a yeah. whole load of other products which can't be resold at a profit. So if, if you try and just go in and buy one, I think it was an incident with Oprah where she complained about sort of racist treatment um, from a luxury goods bag store in Switzerland, okay? I'm not sure it was actually because, I mean, uh, any person working in one of those uh, stores would learn fairly quickly, I would have thought, not to discriminate by race because there right. are very, very rich people of all ethnicities. You know? Right, exactly. They, they, it would be idiotic to do that because you, you're, you don't care about the color of that person's skin. What you care about is money. Yeah. Whatever you think, there, there are undoubtedly forms of ethnic uh, inequality and wealth at the aggregate level, but there are very, very rich people in all ethnic groups. Right, exactly. And I suspect what that was was genuinely something like that going on, which is you make the product difficult to buy. Um, there's a kind of game which apparently happens in luxury goods stores where you get extremely attractive women to actually be slightly rude to the customers. <laughs> and then the older, slightly less attractive women are so keen to make their point that they buy something really expensive in a kind of pretty woman kind of gesture. You know, I, you know, you you've dissed me to now humiliate you bizarrely. I'm going to buy half the contents yeah. of the shop. What? Interesting. I, I didn't know that was a uh, huh, but it, it, it's it's actually interesting that that's actually a technique they use. That's classic in um, in uh, seduction. Interesting. All right, uh, we're going to end the video there. Hit the like, hit the sub, hit all for notifications. Draw me a donation like Hunter M, Adrian Alton, and Bobby, and Dylan. Shoutouts to you. Most recent purchase of Strategist Guide to Seduction and Quotes to Live By. Thank you. My Patreon can be found at patreon.com slash the blog. And if you're interested in coaching, message me at the blog at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening, especially if you listen to the end. I really do appreciate it. Take care of yourselves, and I'll see you next time.